0: Tonight, we're going to get into some responses from two questions that you have sent. Um, Some of these are questions that I've I've had for quite a while back there, and some of these takes a while for us to get to because you've sent me so many of these, which is a good thing to to wrestle with some of these, but we're going to tackle two of these. I always, whenever I pick out some of these questions, I think, well, well, this week we can cover uh, three or four different questions, maybe five questions. We can get to all those, and then when I start working on them, I realize, that that's that's too ambitious to try to get to all of those to do justice to these. The first one, especially, we need to spend some time on this evening, and that is this question, are young children sinners? Now, that is the simple form here. Let me give you the long form here. Both of these questions relate to sinfulness or sinlessness tonight, so that's really the theme of what we're talking about. Uh, Let's look at the, the way the question was worded. What scriptures relate to the topic of when a human being is capable of sinning. If there are babies or other humans that are not capable of sinning, are they still separated from God? If such a person dies, then what can we know about their situation? So really, that's several questions combined into one. Uh, Now, whoever submitted this question also submitted a quote from the back of a Bible. Sometimes if you have a study Bible, uh, it will have some material in the back of it that are are articles that we need to acknowledge are written by men, and uh, sometimes can be accurate, sometimes can be insightful, and sometimes can be um, inaccurate, uh, can be poor interpretation, can be opinionated. So we need to just be careful about that. Just because it's in your Bible does not mean it's in the Bible. It's, it's, we're looking for that we don't take the commentary that may be in a margin of a Bible or in another commentary It's written, we don't take that as Scripture itself. And I know the person who submitted this did not take that as Scripture was sharing the quote that prompted the question. Here's the quote, If we're honest with ourselves, we cannot deny that from the moment of our birth we have done wrong things, things that make us guilty before God and deserving of His judgment. The Bible calls these wrong things sin, and sin separates us from God. And because we're separated from God, we face the awful prospect of the quote, wrath of God, end quote, from John 3:36, which is eternal. Now, you probably have an immediate emotional response to a statement like that. I know I do a little bit. I feel a little angry when I first read that about uh, the callousness of that statement. But let's test it not just with emotion. Let's try to think through the big picture of salvation tonight a little bit with some logic, with some wisdom as we bring that to the scriptures themselves. What this quote expresses is a version, one version, of what some theologians would call original sin or maybe inherent sin. Original sin or inherent sin. Now, when people say original sin, they mean different things when they say that. If what you mean by original sin is that Adam's sin in the garden is that it means that since Adam sinned the world is in a fallen state in which sin is a reality in that world then yes I agree with that I think that is true from scripture if what you mean by original sin is that in this realm of sin and death all who have capacity for moral decision making will eventually sin in ways similar to Adam and Eve and that is through the lust of the eyes through the lust of the flesh through the pride of life then yes, I believe that too. I think Romans 3 teaches that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what some mean by original sin is that since the time that Adam introduced sin, each human being is born in a condition of total depravity. They each have fallen and are living in sin, already living in sin, already exiled, separated from the righteousness of God, and they can only be reconciled through Jesus. Now, here are some passages which support, or used to support, let me say that, they are often used to support what many will refer to as original sin or total, total depravity if that's what they mean when they use that expression. That people are born in a sinful condition. Uh, that they are already in exile from God, separated from him because they have a, they've already have a relationship with sin just because of Adam has sinned due to no sin of their own yet. Psalm 51, verse 5, uh, is one of these. I'm going to put up some of these tonight, and I'm just going to deal with three of these. I know that for time's sake we're not going to be, be able to deal with, with everything here. I will say that if this is, if this is a belief that you have held, um, or is it something that you wrestle with, you know, let's talk more in private. We may not be able to handle everything related to this uh, just in our time tonight. Uh, but Psalm 51, 5, David says, In sin my mother conceived me. So the idea is that David has been associated with sin from the moment of his conception. That's at least how this one is, is, will be used at times. Here's another one, Romans chapter 3, really this whole chapter. But the principle there, there are none righteous, no, not one. That principle stated many different ways in that chapter. Later on it's going to say all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Earlier it says there are none righteous, no, not one. One. The assertion would be that this would include children as well, since the language is universal. All have sinned. There are none righteous, no, not one. So that includes everyone, regardless of age. That is part of the argument that's used. Romans 5, if you go a couple chapters later. This is one where we'll spend a little more time tonight. Romans 5, especially I've got verse 15 up there. By the transgression of the one, meaning Adam, looking back at Adam, the many... And then the what uh, those who would assert a doctrine of original sin, uh, the many would be all uh, the many died. Uh, that would mean that the whole passage is taken by some to mean that spiritual and physical death became a reality for all humans, regardless of age, because of adam 's sin, uh, so that there is a separation from God that we are Individually born into because of Adam's sin, because we find ourselves in Adam, regardless of who we are, or what age, we are in Adam, and therefore must be redeemed in order to be in Christ. Now, anytime I'm dealing with what I have seen used by other people to support a position, um, I try to be as fair as I can to try to at least try to see these passages from their perspective, and that's a little bit of what I'm trying to give you tonight before we look at some different angles on those. Now, for time's sake... Let me just make some brief comments about each of these passages. Let's think through them a little bit. Give you some more things to consider here. Because uh, we, we need to wrestle with these a little bit. Psalm 51. Let's start there. Psalm 51 is David who is in the aftermath of his sin with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed. And Psalm 51 is going to be the psalm that he writes in the, the days that follow this. There's a lot of personal emotional language in the psalms in general and there especially is a lot of personal emotional language in this one which comes from David in a very difficult time in his life the first part of the psalm is really one long confession of his sin to God the second part of the psalm is going to be him asking, you know, how do I move on from this? Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. You know, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Let, let me. let me get back to a right relationship with you. So David is all out of sorts whenever he writes this psalm. Uh, the, the psalms especially it, it will allow the human writers to be very honest in what they are feeling in these moments. And that's one of the reasons I love the book. I love to spend time there. It touches on every human emotion. And we certainly see that in Psalm 51. David is going to say something in Psalm 51 verse 3 where he says, My sin is ever before me. It's as if it's sitting right out in front of his face. Now, in all honesty though, Would we take from that, from David saying that, that he is still dead in his trespasses and sins, to borrow an expression from the book of Ephesians? Well, Nathan has already told him. Nathan the prophet who delivered the convicting message first off, that you are the man, you you have sinned, you know, to wake him up to the reality of his sin. Nathan also followed that up by saying, God has forgiven your sin, he's taken away your sin. So in reality, He is not, God has already moved past holding David responsible for that sin. Now, there are consequences from that, but as far as his legal status before God of whether he is guilty or not, you know, God has forgiven him of that guilt. But yet David, as from his personal perspective, his, in his emotion, he still says, my sin is ever before me, because that's what he's feeling at this point. Um... So he expresses that in verse three. now, a couple of verses later is where he expresses that he feels that his sin in this long confession that he 's making, he feels that his history of sin goes all the way back to his conception now there's a question on what he 's referring to here when he says in sin, my mother conceived me does he does he mean?" You know, I'll throw out three options. Maybe there's more. Does he mean that his mother's, uh, his mother was guilty of sin? That there was sin involved in his conception. Which, if she was married to Jesse, what we know about David, you know, there's all indication that she was. It would not have been a sinful act. Of course, we don't know everything about David's background there. But is that what he feels? Does he feel that he was in a sinful condition, totally depraved? from the moment of his conception, and that's probably what someone who, who takes that view, someone who would write that article that was in the back of the Bible that was submitted, probably the view that they would take there. Or is he saying that by nature of being human, from that moment of conception, he was destined to commit sin at some point? Uh, he found himself among the humans, and humans are sinful people. Uh, is that what he is saying? Whatever his intent, the main thrust of the passage is David confessing that he is a sinful man. And let's not, let's not forget that. That's what he's getting at, uh, that he's a sinful man. And, and he cannot remember uh, a time before he was a sinner because we don't remember that far back. Uh, That's how he feels in this point. He's doing this in very emotional terms. I think we've got to be very careful about forming a doctrine about original sin based on this one verse. of uh, A doctrine for everyone of when sin becomes a reality for a child based on what David says here. If you really think through that. Does this mean that we have already committed sin from the moment of our conception? I don't take that from Psalm 51. I don't think that's what it can be saying to us. Those are some things to think about there. What about Romans 3? Romans 3, when it says all have sinned and there are none righteous, I mean, we've got to take that seriously. We do. Well, again, let's consider the main thrust of what this part of Romans is telling us about. The, the whole section of, of Romans, first part of Romans leading up to this, what is, what is God trying to get across to us through the Apostle Paul? The main thrust of this section of Romans is to sum up the arguments of chapters 1 and 2. You really need to read chapters 1, 2, and 3 together of Romans. And chapters 1 and 2 are going to lay out, and it's going to give you some different scenarios. And it's basically going to say that whether you lived under the regulations of the law of Moses, as the Jews did, or whether you did not have the law of Moses, as the Gentiles did not, that you still have sinned. So there is some degree of accountability both for those who had the special revelation of God, you know, who had the word that he'd given up to that point. They're held accountable for how they lived under that word. But there's also an accountability for those who may not have had access to his word But they still knew some things about God, whether by what he revealed through his creation, okay, that's in chapter 1, or even their own conscience bearing witness to some of the things that are right and wrong, some basic knowledge of God and his morality, uh, and that's in chapter 2 of Romans. So when it gets to chapter 3 and it says that all have sinned and none are righteous before God, the main thrust of this part of Romans is to say that... It's not, this language is not necessarily applied to all ages and all intellectual capacities. The all in this context is applied to all who have lived under the law and all who have lived outside of the law. All who had the the revealed word of God, all who did not have the revealed word of God are all sinners. That's the all that is in discussion here. Again, children are not brought into this context here, so we've got to be careful about, I know that language is universal, but again, it's, it's not necessarily meant to be, pl- to be applied to those of a very young age. Now, Romans 5, let's spend a few more minutes with. Romans 5, and we'll probably need to spend a little more time on Romans 5 and another sermon, because there's a lot going on here in this chapter. But really, just some thoughts from the last part of this chapter. If the main thrust of Romans 3 is that the problem of being separated or exiled is that we have a problem of being separated or exiled from God, Then the main thrust of Romans 5 is the good news of God making a way for us to be reconciled to him through Jesus, to be brought back together, to be made friends again, to be back in relationship with him. And there is definitely an analogy, there's a parallel going on here between Adam and between Jesus. This is not the only place in the Bible that does this. 1 Corinthians 15 is going to call Jesus the last Adam. There's the first Adam, there's the last Adam, and Romans 5 is playing on the same idea. Now here is some of the parallels. The parallels is really a contrast between the two, but the analogy is meant to, to show them as something that is associated with each one. Through Adam, we have sin. Jesus, in contrast, we have righteousness. Through Adam, there is exile. Through Jesus, there's reconciliation. You can see the opposites in in the two. Through Adam, there is death. And through Jesus, there is life. Those are the three main ideas that I can see when I'm going through Romans 5 of the contrast between the two. But there's a parallel here and that's important as you go through this this passage. Let's read Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Let's, Let's zoom into that a little bit and look at what this says. Therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now let's see what we see here. One of the main things that we see here is that death comes along with sin. I mentioned this morning, death is a close relative of sin. Satan has known that from the beginning. And the two were associated, they were in the garden, and they have been ever since then. Death comes along with sin. And when all will inevitably sin, because all sin, that doesn't mean that everyone has already committed their sin. It just means that there is an inevitability that if they reach a certain point where they are held accountable... Uh, they will have sinned. They will follow the pattern of Adam. Adam is not unique in his sin. He is the first of many in his kind who will follow the same pattern. And so I at some point will enter into a relationship with sin, just as Adam at some point entered into a relationship with sin. Just as Adam was created good, he was not a sinner to begin with. Uh, He was not born in a sinful condition or created in a sinful condition. Neither am I created in a sinful condition, yet I have the capacity for sin, and I will eventually commit sin if I live long enough. I will make a choice that is similar to Adam's. So death comes along with this sin, and as it says, death spreads to all men because of this. Uh, and look, if you think about this, death, and I've mentioned this in some other places. I know we're studying Isaiah right now. Isaiah 25, uh, verse verses 7 and 8, it describes death as this, uh, Well, we'll, we'll let's, let's go back to here. Death, death is described as this it's almost like this covering over all people. Uh, it's almost as if it's a burial shroud is the image that is covering all the world, over all nations. It is a consequence of a world that is in exile, a world that has fallen. a world, And all this was initiated by Adam's sin. This is where it began. Uh, but it is also perpetuated by my sin. Uh, And your sin, because we all will follow Adam's paradigm of having choice of right and wrong, and choosing wrong when we could have chosen right. So that's what this is is getting at. Now let's look a a little bit later at Romans 5.19, a little bit later in this chapter. Here's your parallel. As through the one man's disobedience, this is the first Adam, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous." Now, I should have put up another parallel here between Adam being associated with disobedience, really sin, and Jesus being associated with obedience or righteousness, as we said. As through the one man's disobedience or unrighteousness the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Let's think through this a little bit. This should be an exciting verse for Christians. It shouldn't be a troubling one. Because the main point is that when we are in Christ... And when his righteousness, when we have been joined to his righteousness, then we put it on as if it's clothing. We're clothed in his righteousness, his goodness. And we can stand before a righteous God because of that. In legal terms, we are no longer guilty. We are no longer in sin. The next chapter is going to talk about what the implications of what that means. You read Romans chapter 6, it's going to say, All the members of your body, all your body parts, they used to be slaves to sin, now they're slaves to, to righteousness. They are to be instruments of righteousness. That is what you are to be now that you are in Christ. But what does this mean about the idea of original sin? We can certainly conclude from Romans 3 and Romans 5 together that Adam is not unique as a sinner. All of us follow his precedent. The question is whether a sinful, exiled from God condition is applied to each of us before we ever sin ourselves. If you make that assertion that you are totally depraved, either at conception or at your birth, whenever you make that that point, if you are totally depraved by no fault of your own, and each child is, is that way. If you make that assertion, let's, let's assume that for a moment, and let's play that out a little bit, then if there is a direct parallel here, and I hope you follow my logic here, if there's a direct parallel between being in Adam and being in Jesus, if by no choice of your own, then then you are, are totally depraved just because you're part of Adam's seed. And if there's a direct parallel between the work of Jesus and the work of Adam, then the only logical conclusion that I can see here is that you would also have to conclude that all humans who were totally depraved by no decision of their own would also be made righteous by no decision of their own. And this would be the doctrine that we refer to as universalism, the idea that everyone will be saved, that everyone will be in Christ whether they've made a decision for that or not. Uh, and that's just, there's too many passages in the Bible that refute that idea, uh, that, that show us that, that there is decision to be made, there is commitment that is to be made, and not everyone will be a disciple of Jesus, not everyone will be in Christ. Some, many rejected him during his life, uh, and many will continue to reject him. now if you have trouble seeing that logic or if I'm wrong thinking through this then, then see me afterwards but that seems to be the parallel if sin and death have spread to all men it, that you are a sinner even before your first choice that you ever made then when through the work of Jesus then all your sin would be taken away by no choice of your own and some believe that but there's too much of the rest of the Bible that that doesn't match up with Let's do a little thinking with the wisdom of God about sin and moral accountability. Moral accountability corresponds at least to some degree to intellectual capacity. Let's walk carefully through that tonight. I don't mean book smarts, uh, even how much of the Bible that you know. You can be guilty of sin whether you know the Bible or not. I mean the intellect to know a morally harmful choice from a morally good choice and to choose that which is morally harmful. That may not be a perfect definition of when sin becomes a reality for you, but to know a morally harmful choice from a morally good choice and to choose that which is morally harmful... Stewardship itself corresponds proportionally to our moral intellectual capacity, based on the principle in other parts of Scripture, to whom much is given, much is required. Now, where is that line, that line of moral accountability, which comes along with, with intellectual capacity? Well, that's a difficult question. It's a difficult question because there's some variation in how each child matures in their understanding. Some children may reach that point of a knowledge of sin, uh, a knowledge that they are wronging God, they are wronging others, and they, they're convicted about it. They may reach that at a, at a fairly early age. Um, others, it may take a little longer for that. This is also complicated by the fact that there, there are also varying degrees of, of uh, what we might call special needs cases. There are degrees of learning disorders or other intellectual challenges which some children and some adults face. So that's something to consider here are all held with the same amount of accountability even though some um, have some challenges in that area. And as I said when we looked at the suicide question even a few weeks ago some people at some point in their lives they will face the onset we're dealing with adults now But some will face the onset of a drastic intellectual and behavioral changes that are based on a brain injury or the development of a real mental illness or the development of a neurological disorder. Are they held by the same level of accountability? Now, in each of these situations, it becomes difficult for us to draw that line. You know, what, what do we hold the person to? I'm sure parents struggle with that. I mean, we we do with our young children, but especially if you have a special needs case, or if you have, you know, someone that you're dealing with that that even has a special needs as uh, have special needs as an adult. You know, how do you how do you walk through that? How much do you hold them accountable for? Now, if we struggle with how much to hold that person accountable for. Are we in a position to know what level of moral accountability God holds the person to? It's difficult. But I just think through, just for illustration, if a parent has a late stage dementia and says some angry, profane words, you know, it's speech that does not match with God's will of holiness in our speech and conduct. Now we can say that that speech is wrong, but can we say that the person has sinned if on a physiological level of brain activity their capacity for clear judgment in their speech and in their actions is severely inhibited? One angle we must take with this question is to play out the scenario. If, if babies, if special needs adults, if, if everyone, no matter what their maturity or intellectual capacity, is in a sinful condition and is separated from God by nature of being human and inheriting Adam's sin, let's, let's assume that for a moment. Let's, let's play that out just to think through this a little bit. Let's just assume that's the case, all of us. No matter what age, no matter you know, from the moment of conception, the moment of birth, wherever you want to make that, but we're, we're all inherently sinners and we're in a sinful condition. Would we not also say that if you are in a sinful condition, that you are separated from God, that you are exiled from God? Okay, then you then that's a problem. That's especially a problem if you die in that moment. That's a, that's a real problem. Well, what do we think about real human beings who? are killed after their conception but even before their moment of birth by no choice of their own which is happening to millions around our world. What about that situation? What about some other things to think about through. through What would we say what someone needs if they're in a condition where they're sinful, where they're exiled from God? Well, what needs to happen for them to be reconciled to God? Well, we would say that they need to hear the Word. They need to repent of their sins. They need to, if they are a sinner, they need to repent of those sins. They need to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and they need to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Do you think a six-month-old or a two-month-old or a a two-year-old is capable of all of that? You know, if I ask my two-year-old, who is very smart, very proud of her, if I ask my two-year-old if she believes Jesus is the Christ, the Son of living God, I could probably flip a coin on whether she's going to say yeah or whether she's going to say no thanks, just because she's still learning the significance of what those mean. Now, she's, she's, she's learning. She's getting a basic understanding of some yes and no no things, but belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, that's, I could teach her to say that, maybe as in memorization, but it wouldn't mean that it's something that she really believes, that she could even grasp the meaning of that. Uh, And if you say that, well, she doesn't have to have the capacity yet to know all that sin entails to commit to turning away, you know, uh, you need to know something about sin if you're going to commit to turning away from it. You know, re- what repentance is. Now some would say, well, well, don't don't give me all that. All, we need to just go ahead and we need to just baptize the child anyway. So that they can be identified with the people of God. Not only does that not match up with examples of what you see in the New Testament church. You know, I've heard people use the arguments. You're, well, you know, some people, whenever they make a decision, it says them and all of their household are baptized. Yes, but the ages of, of children is not addressed one way or the other in those passages. Okay, so, so we, we, we can't, just based on that, you know, we can't say that babies are baptized just based on that idea. If you baptize someone from a young age if they're an infant or even if they're just a little bit older than that how is that baptism truly accompanied by faith in the working of God because that's what Colossians 2 verse 12 tells us about baptism now you may say it's accompanied by your faith a parent's faith or a church's faith that administers that but it's not their faith it can't be their faith yet they haven't reached that point The only reason I do this exercise to play this out is that if you accept that version of original sin, that you are born as a sinner regardless of what you have done, you've got a lot of problems to work through of how that matches up with the rest of Scripture. And you've got what seems to fit better with the rest of Scripture is that there is a point in time When each person will be called into account based on age, based on maturity, based on their intellectual capacity. And God knows those things a lot better than we do. Our job is to help them work through it. And whatever level someone is with with their understanding is to, to help them that if they're in that position to make the right choice when they're capable of it. I'm aware that there's no explicit mention in the Bible of an age of accountability. And there is certainly no age that is prescribed. But the concept is certainly there. I cannot accept that an infant or a toddler has separated himself or herself from God through sin and that the baby would be held accountable for sin if he was to die. And therefore, it would be in hell if he or she has not responded to the gospel uh, with faith, with repentance, with confession, with baptism. Uh, that's, just, that's not just on the basis of emotion. The logic of that expectation just doesn't add up. So I know that's a lot in sorting through that question. But I also left a lot out there for maybe us to, to continue to discuss. I know it's a, it's a complex topic. Here's the last one I want to spend just a moment on. Was Elijah sinless? Now, the reason that I was asked, was Elijah sinless since he did not die. Now, we have been associating death sin and death. I mentioned earlier that Isaiah 25 portrays death as this universal reality, as if it's a burial shroud over all peoples. And that's how I would talk about original sin, is that no, we, we have, doesn't mean that we have committed sin. We are not born as someone who is guilty of sin, but we are born into a world that has already, that is we're going to experience the consequences of sin from our birth. Not from my personal sin yet, but from Adam's sin and everyone else's sin. It is a world where death is a reality. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is going to look at Isaiah 25, and it's going to quote it, and it's going to say, the good news is that one day death will be swallowed up for all time. Uh, It alludes to that passage in that. Well, for my study of the scriptures, we do find two exceptions to the rule. The death is inevitable for all humans. By the way, Jesus is not even one of those exceptions. Jesus actually died on the cross. He, he, he died. His, body, his heart stopped beating. Uh, he, he, was, he was dead and buried in a tomb. That's why the resurrection is so significant. It's not just a, a resuscitation back to normal human existence. It's something very different uh, than that. But the two exceptions that we find, Elijah is one of them. And the other is Enoch. He's mentioned in the book of Genesis. The book just says that he was not, for God took him. And that's about all the information that we have about Enoch. After it tells us that he walked with God. We get a little more information about Elijah of his life and the way that he was taken by God. Before we talk about Elijah, let me say that these are the only exceptions, the only exceptions that we have so far. Uh, We And I'll go ahead and put 1 Corinthians 15, 51 up there. The only exceptions to the rule that we have so far. The way the Bible describes the final coming of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead is that those who have died will be raised. Those who have died, let's talk about them first, they will be raised in a glorified bodily form. And that is what will happen first. 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, tells us that. But those of us who are alive and remain... For instance, if Jesus was to come back tonight, and unless you have, have died in the car accident or a heart attack, God forbid, on the way home, you are alive and remain whenever Jesus comes, then you too will be caught up together with those who have been raised, and you too will be changed. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one: we will not all sleep, which means we will not all die. But we will all be changed. We will still, we won't take this mortal body into eternity with us. It will be transformed into a glorified body as well, an immortal body in conformity with the body of Jesus as well. So Enoch and Elijah may be the exceptions up to this point, but they will not be the last of the exceptions. There will be others who will live and will not face the death of this body, merely the transformation of this body. That helps me think through this question, that it is not, it doesn't make Elijah that unique whenever we think through him. The answer ultimately uh, is, is no. Elijah was not sinless. There will be a lot of uh, of Christians who were not sinless, but... If they are alive when Jesus returns, they will not die. What we can conclude is that God showed tremendous favor both to Enoch and Elijah by making them exceptions. Elijah was faithful, he was a man of faith, he had his flaws, he had low points. You know, whether we think he's sinning or not in 1 Kings chapter 19, um, he certainly quits his job for a while. He goes off and goes off by himself to Mount Horeb and is spending some time there and God has to come and talk with him about it. So he's at least a flawed human being. He demonstrates that and if he lived long enough, and we know he did, then he, uh, he sinned. He is a sinner. Um, if someone like Elijah, or I'll use Job for an example, if someone is describing the Bible as blameless, as upright or blameless, you know, we're, we're trying to take nominations for elders, and uh, blameless or a good reputation or part of those, those qualities that we're looking for, that does not mean that that person is sinless, that they have never sinned in their life. That, that doesn't happen. That means that they are sinners. But their sin has been covered in the blood of Jesus. They are now covered in his righteousness. And they by faith are walking in step with Jesus. They are applying his righteousness. They are upright. They are blameless in the eyes of God because their sin by faith is covered. Abraham. Abraham, Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him or credited to him as righteousness. Okay? And we know Abraham had sin. And yet he is, he is said to share in the Righteousness of God uh, because of that faith. So, So Elijah is the same way. Now, why is Elijah an exception and others are not? I don't know all the reasons for that. I know it's a dramatic scene of Elijah being ushered into the heavenly realm via a fiery angelic chariot. Maybe that was God demonstrating what he is capable of. But God may have also had another reason. This is some speculation here. But God may have also wanted Elijah in a bodily form in the heavenly realm for a purpose that he had later on. And that was, uh, what more appearance that we read of of Elijah in the New Testament? Whenever Jesus is on a mountain and God reveals that Jesus is not the only one there. There is Moses and there is Elijah. And somehow the disciples recognize them for who they are. I don't know how. And is Elijah in a spirit form? Is he in a bodily form? The text doesn't tell us that they at least see him there. Could it be that that was what God had in mind was to take Elijah because he had a purpose for him in a bodily form later on as a demonstration of Jesus' transfiguration, which was to show that as great as Elijah was, he's not Jesus. Jesus was far superior even to a great prophet like Elijah. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight we pray that you've guided our thoughts with wisdom. We pray that we will continue to wrestle with, with these things and seek truth. Uh, I pray that, um, as I, I know that many times I fail to adequately uh, handle these things, these topics. uh, Father, we pray that we will just continue to give attention to it and that you would guide us as we seek truth together. We need you, Father. Thank you for Jesus, who we know is the one that we trust in as the one who lived a perfect life, the one in whom we can have salvation, the one in whom our life is grounded in. We pray this in his name. Amen. Tonight, we're going to sing a song of invitation. If you have a need to respond to that, ask for the prayers of this congregation. We want to talk about being baptized into Christ tonight by faith in the working of God. A baptism. Because you know you are a sinner. Because you know that there is wrong in your life, that you want to be in the right. You want to to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, to be in Jesus Christ. And that happens in the moment of baptism. If it's by faith in the working of God, when you go down, you are buried with him. You are joined with him. You rise with him to walk in newness of life. Tonight, if you need to make that decision or anything else, let us know as together we stand and as we sing.